It's time to start the uh, CareCast, uh, brought to you by the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit at Mayo Clinic, and I am host of the CareCast, Victor Montori. Um, today, we have a wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunity, which is to, the, to meet and discuss uh, with Erin Gilmer, uh, a, a, who is a patient advocate and a health policy attorney with a passion for health as a human right. Her work has focused on empowering and educating uh, all uh, healthcare stakeholders in a range of crucial issues, including and uh, particularly trauma-informed care, but also health privacy issues, access to affordable medicines, social determinants of health, patient engagement, and other topics that are critical to us as we understand how to make uh, healthcare fit. Erin, wonderful to have you with us today. Welcome to the CareCast. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Excellent. Um, so the first question we always ask um, our, our, our uh, guests uh, here is, um, well, how, how does one become Mary Gilmer? So how does one get to the point where you are? What's been the journey and to what extent it's been the subject of you know, uh, <laughs> luck uh, or uh, or choice? Um, well, I would say a lot of it has to do with lack of luck, <laughs> lack of choice. Um, I honestly came to um, trauma-informed care and to uh, advocating for patients um, and in health policy spaces because I'm a patient myself. Um, I grew up with a number of health issues and then um, in my college years actually um, had some um, autoimmune diseases um, diagnosed and um, continued over time um, to kind of rack up some disabilities um, until I went on disability in uh, 2013. And so, you know, none of that is lucky at all, but it has uh, given me perspective on, you know, the human condition and the commonalities we face um, in struggles, as well as the inequities we face and given me kind of that drive to want to make the world better. So that's kind of how I came here. Um, lots of different opportunities to um, explore different areas of healthcare, um, you know, whether it be health technology or, you know, um, again, what we're here to talk about today, the trauma-informed care or things like housing, access to medicine. You know, I've been fortunate to be in a lot of spaces that um, patients maybe weren't always included in. Um, and tried to help give patients a voice and try to uh, make change for the better. And was there a, was there an instance in either the lack of luck category or <laughs> otherwise that prompted your interest in uh, trauma-informed care? So trauma-informed care um, was not a term I was familiar with until um, 2017, actually, so about three years ago, I went in for a procedure and had to be under general anesthesia. 
Um, and I woke up with just very severe um, emergence delirium. And um, it was it was really bad. Um, so I came out of that not kind of knowing what to do, but also knowing that a week after, exactly one week later, I was going to need a surgery. So I needed to quickly figure out exactly what I was going to do so I didn't have this experience again. And I was talking to another patient, a friend of mine, um, Lisa Bernstein, um, and she had mentioned this term, trauma-informed care, and how she um, talked about it in terms of giving patients kind of more choices and thinking through what their care might be. I thought, oh my gosh, this is really interesting. Um, So I immediately went online and started just Googling the term trauma-informed care to look it up, um, to try to see what it meant, were there best practices out there, what could I learn that I could implement so that I could protect myself for the next um, surgery. And uh, in so you've just now triggered all sorts of people who say, oh my gosh, she went to Google. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That, that that is the that is the worst place to go, and then you get all sorts of bad ideas. But was it productive for you? Yes. So um, I know that the common conception is that a patient is going to Google something, and we're going to go to WebMD, and we're going to get find out we have cancer, <laughs> um, and that's kind of the trope. But The reality is a lot of patients um, are very adept at using Google to find resources these days. Um, You know, some are better than others. Luckily, when I was um, Googling, you know, I used Google Scholar, which is a lot like PubMed, um, a resource that not everybody knows about, but is a great tool if you want to find research papers. Um, And I also just looked up, um, you know, institutions or researchers who were credible um, and came across work from, um, there's a woman, Carol Warshaw, who has actually been doing this work um, for decades in Chicago and works for um, a national um, nonprofit on domestic violence and mental health, and she had some great presentations on um, trauma-informed care. So I just went ahead and found and emailed her, found her email, and I said, listen, I'm a patient. I came across your work. Um, This is all really interesting to me. Can you tell me more? And she ended up sending me a bunch of articles um, that I was able to kind of read through and present that information back to my own doctors and nurses and anesthesiologists. And um, that surgery actually ended up being one of the easiest surgeries I've ever been through. So, so it was uh, it, the, the pursue of that, the lead by your peer patient Right. Uh, searching uh, not regular Google, but Google Scholar, 
for both, suing. Right? Go ahead. Both, actually, both. So both. I start usually when I'm looking up something new with regular Google. So I can kind of see trauma-informed care. Is that kind of what we, um, you know, being an attorney, we call it a term of art, something that has a specific meaning. And so does it have a specific meaning and a specific knowledge base? And then if it does, I can take it to Google Scholar and look for the actual research articles um, themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and um, uh, I was just at a meeting where uh, a person that is, that works for uh, Google and in the health side of Google was telling, uh, said it uh, casually. So I don't know the reference and, and to what extent it is, it is true, but uh, that when people do a search related to a health term in Google, the third click is usually uh, more likely to be to a patient forum. So I, I would like to, yeah, I'd like to see yeah. that a little bit more detail, but, but it does. Um, so then the notion that peer patients are one of these uh, yeah. uh, routes towards uh, understanding and, and practical wisdom, it seems uh, that is becoming a little bit more common knowledge and common behavior. Yes, it is. Um, you know, a lot of doctors, um, aren't super thrilled about patients giving patients advice because we haven't been to medical school. Um, and I understand that, but a lot of us have kind of been through um, a, you know, Cliff's Notes version of medical school because of all of the interactions and the things that we've learned along the way. Um, we often like to share with other people so that they can use it and grow it. Um, there's some amazing blogs out there, great people on Twitter. I know I'm not on Facebook, but I know there's some very resourceful Facebook groups with patients um, just coming together and sharing knowledge. And that really, um, you know, will tie into some things we talk about on trauma-informed care, which is changing the power structure so that it's more equal so that we're kind of all in this together on this on the same level patients and clinicians as partners exactly yeah the uh, mayo clinic has a uh, connect uh, uh, network uh, kind of a protected uh, network yeah. for the facebook type for prospective and and past patients uh, of mayo that also hosts uh, conversations like th like that, you know, between patients and uh, with some degree of moderation, because I think some patients are also quite yeah. uh, afraid of getting into those environments and uh, either being given misleading advice, although right. these communities tend to self-correct, uh, but also, you know, who knows what kind of scammers and other other right. folks are, right. are lurking. Um, um, turns out the same thing for clinicians. Uh, right. we, you know, we tend to believe that we're protected by our training, but you know, not we, always. Yeah. Not always, that's for sure. The um uh, the other thing that is remarkable about this story about how you got uh, into trauma-informed care is the fact that you 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 know called on an academic, uh cold. To, yeah. to get uh, to get resources information and 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 you got a response and uh, yeah. It's, yeah it's kind of interesting for us because we you know I, I I have the opportunity to mentor people and and I often recommend that people you know contact uh, the authors of key papers or 
or tools and and the bet is will they respond and i always bet for in favor of our response and sounds like that, that you had you had help yeah i think i um learned to do this over the years in reading papers look for the lead author or principal investigator usually they'll have some contact information on the paper um and I actually started doing it because as a patient, a lot of these articles are behind paywalls. And so if I wanted to read something, I don't have the funds to be able to purchase each one, um, but I want to be able to understand the information to help me or help other people. And so I learned to reach out in those first few times. It was like, I don't know if they'll ever get back to me, but um, they did. I actually um, still have a website up um, called The Research Loop with this very idea in mind of having patients be able to contact researchers because I think there is um, a, a unique way for patients and researchers to engage um, and learn from each other you know, um, and uh, that was even shown, you know, going forward when I talked to this specific researcher about trauma-informed care and she sent me all these articles, I put together things for my doctors. And I also sent it back to the, uh, this researcher, uh, Dr. Warshaw, and I said, what do you think? Do you think this is going to help anybody? Um, and her response was, yes, actually. In fact, can I use this to teach now my people on how to help their patients engage? And so there's just this um, warmth in collaboration with researchers that can happen um, to really improve care. Um, unfortunately, I don't see it being utilized enough just because I don't think people know they can. Yeah, but but uh, yeah. I, I am a big endorser of what you just described, which is the notion of generosity. So the, the researcher sent you material, begetting generosity. You took the material, yeah. found it helpful, added value, sent back. And now that, uh, that begets additional generosity where your material now gets to support uh, the training of other folks that may be in a position to... Uh, offer trauma-informed care in a better way. So if yeah. there's a sick circle of giving that is uh, enacted. Um, on that note, have you identified a primary value that's been motivating your, your work as, a, as an advocate? Yeah. Um, you know, I come to everything through the lens of health as a human right. Um, I came to that in law school. I did not actually like law school. I went to law school in part to keep my health insurance, um, which is kind of a sad joke. Um, and um, was lucky enough to get to study human rights, um, came across health as a human right and said, yes, this is exactly what um, care should be about is, um, you know, these fundamental principles that we should all have and make the world better. And I think of health as a human right kind of um, as broadly encompassing all sorts of areas. Um, 
including, you know, housing, um, access to food, transportation, you know, all of the issues actually that we're seeing right now is very serious issues during COVID um, that people maybe didn't see as related before. Um, And part of viewing something through a human rights lens, I think, is coming to it with compassion because you are viewing um, everybody as deserving of care and kindness and, you know, um, a good life. And so compassion is also kind of that principal value I want to imbue in, in all my work and um, and what I try to um, advocate for. But health as a human right is a, it's, it's, it's a heavy concept in, this, in a number of ways, but one of which is that it, it puts upon the state, the, um, the, the government, the requirement of uh, advancing and protecting the human right for every citizen. Uh, that, you know, that's something that is a commitment uh, that, for instance, in the United States appears to be non-existent. Right. It's becoming um, more of a um, rallying cry for some, but it is polarizing for others. And I would say because it's a human right and we think about human rights in terms of like who enforces them, who is going to make sure everybody has access to care. um, We forget that human rights are also kind of enforced individually. You and I also have um, the responsibility to ensure health as a human right to our fellow citizens. You know, I have the um, responsibility of making sure there's equity in healthcare just as much as the government has um, a responsibility. And, you know, that all, again, comes from compassion. Do I have compassion for the people around me? what they've experienced, what they've been through, um, whether they have resources or not, you know, how can I make sure that everybody is cared for? There is a, um, there is this notion that I have uh, begun to understand or at least explore um, that, that puts care in the middle of um uh, of an understanding of how we are relating to each other, how we're relating to the world. Uh, yeah. And it speaks of, of these caring interactions between individuals, which would be when you care for and about someone, you know, you are advancing their, their capability, their possibility for human flourishing. But it also extends to, you know, caring communities um, where you look at issues of housing, for instance, and, you know, access to resources, transportation, um, you know, clean water, clean air. Um, and then you move to, to caring uh, societies in which we, for instance, take care of the planet and make it a sustainable place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when you, if we land this at the level of healthcare, um, then one can see how, um, trauma-informed care appears there as a, a as an area of interest, as an area of advocacy. Um, I often ask in this uh, in this series, you know, what's been your favorite collaboration? And I wonder if this is a place where we can begin to see how how that plays out. 
That's um, a good question. Um, you use the term partners in care before. I like to use the word colleagues in care um, just because I, I think it's great when we can respect each other coming to the table with all sorts of unique um, both lived experiences and kind of learned uh, professional experiences and realize how much um, we can gain from one another. Um, I think I've been fortunate to have some times when I've had really good care. Um, I talk about it as uh, the doctor who got it, <laughs> quote unquote, uh, which is kind of this ineffable thing um, of seeing somebody and understanding them and wanting to get to know them, wanting to engage with them um, on a deeper level. Um, I know you've talked about it in your book and I've talked about it with some of my friends about um, infusing care, healthcare with love, which is kind of a radical idea um, and kind of what trauma-informed care is all about because it's about having, again, that compassion and humility to want to care deeply about somebody. And I have had those experiences which have deeply healed some of my past trauma from a very from various research uh, sources. Um, and when it's gone wrong, it's created trauma. You know, um, I think that's something that healthcare doesn't recognize is that healthcare is endemically traumatizing. Even sometimes what we think of as good care, you know, a good surgery is still traumatizing. You're going through a lot. You may have a good doctor and a good anesthesiologist and a good team, but you come out of it, um, you know, having been vulnerable, having to, you know, give up a lot of your dignity and um, autonomy to somebody else. And often even the good doctors who are trying hard and don't think they're doing everything wrong and they're following the book um, are still creating trauma because that's just how care is kind of provided. Um, and uh, so I think it's important to understand that infusing your care with love helps protect against some of just care, you know, as it's normally given. Um, and it does even more to heal care that is poorly given. So let's unpack that a little bit yeah. more. The um, First, I'm interested in, in your definition of uh, what kind of love are we talking about? Because I, sure. uh, yeah, yeah. There, there was just a, a course at Dartmouth College on as a graduate course where they use the, the Why We Revolt book um, as the basis for the discussion. And the students were asked which of the chapters caught your attention and uh, they yeah. did a word cloud. And the word cloud, the biggest one was love. And then we got, you know, the question, you know, the, one of the questions was skeptical. So like, you talk about love, but you really don't need love to care for patients. Um, what's your take on that? Well, um, 
technically you do not need love to provide care. You were, you can provide care dispassionately. Um, but as I just said, you know, that is going to leave somebody with some kind of medical trauma. Um, usually not always, you know, um, I go to the pharmacist and I get my flu shot and that's not particularly traumatizing and they're not in a particularly, you know, giving me love when they're doing that. Um, that's something to, that's how healthcare is. But it, you know, when I go to the doctor's office and something hurts or something is wrong, um, you know, I have had very dispassionate doctors and then I leave crying. And it's like, well, they gave me care. So technically um, I'm okay, but I feel, you know, emotionally spent and drained and still left unheard. So I think if you want to provide good care, that love does need to be part of it. Um, And, um, you know, I was going to read back your own words. Um, When care is wrapped in love, however, crying happens. The patients and I know that these loving relationships help to recover from a setback, to regain perspective or hope, and to reframe a goal with compassion and self-forgiveness. We know that love heals. And I think, actually, when I read your book, that's one of the first places I reached out to you about um, was how much that hit me because I hadn't had loving relationships and care all the time. And that takes a toll, especially with somebody with disabilities, especially, you know, um, chronically ill patients who are in and out of the doctor's office all the time. You're dealing with pain and vulnerability Um, And the only way to get at that is love and compassion Um, to keep wanting to, you know, move forward with treatment when everything seems uh, too much, you know, it's that love that really moves it forward. And I think people sometimes push back because again, there are boundaries. This isn't, you know, um, this is still a professional relationship. Um, but I don't think it has to be as sterile as maybe, um, medicine sometimes teaches. So, so the, the, um, that suggests, so my perspective and and thank you for reading, reading, reading the book about this, but the, the, my perspective comes from taking care of patients with chronic conditions. And so, one thing that is fertile ground for that loving interaction between patients and clinicians is continuity is, is, is that we get yeah. to meet several times and over time and sometimes through difficult times, sometimes through easier times and the relationship develops in which we get to appreciate and know each other. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the traumas you pointed out uh, occurs through these more casual interactions where with a specialist perhaps, or somebody who's about to do a procedure in which there's really little opportunity for a relationship 
a meaningful one, at least to, to fully emerge before somebody's ready to invade you physically. Right. Um, and that's one of the things that trauma-informed care does focus on, um, uh, kind of in two aspects. I'll come back to kind of the universal precautions aspect, but, um, you know, trauma-informed care asks that every provider recognize from the beginning that there is this power differential where the patient is vulnerable and does not have all the control in the situation so that when the patient does show up, um, the provider is already keyed into um, understanding that there could be a vulnerability here and it's their responsibility to create you know, a warm, comfortable, secure, safe environment. Um, and then that, again, goes back to universal precautions, which is basically I'm going to implement something universally um, because I don't know who's going to walk in my door that has trauma. And uh, it could be one person or it could be 50 people that come in. That person could tell me they have trauma or maybe somebody comes in and they aren't going to say anything. And it's the fact that I have all of these things already set up to provide trauma-informed care that is going to help them be able to trust me, even develop a little bit of a relationship, even if it's a, a short-term relationship. Um, so, you know, one of the things in that first example, when I came to trauma-informed care was talking to anesthesiologists. I actually for all of my time in healthcare and however many surgeries I'd had up until then, I never actually knew I could talk to my anesthesiologist the night before. Like I always got that 15 minutes before the surgery and not the night before um, where I could have a little bit longer conversation with them about what my needs were you know, what was um, maybe something I was scared about. So I think an, another aspect you're talking about here is that patients don't have great ways to communicate with providers before or um, during that care relationship to really help them see the patient as a whole person. You know, and how do we open that up um, to foster kind of a better care environment? Do do you see this uh, going beyond? I mean, we're getting questions now from uh, our audience now, and and one of the questions is struggling with with this definition or this description of love, and wonders if if you're not simply speaking of of just general kindness. Uh, how, how do you distinguish that? Um, you know, that's, um, interesting. I, so it's making me think for a second. So there's a couple of things with, um, kindness is, you know, hopefully something we can all practice every day. Um, it's part of compassion. It's part of understanding somebody else's experience. Um, even when maybe they aren't being kind to you. Um, I think the difference with 
love um, and in trauma-informed care is that it forms an actual relationship. So there's a, a back and forth and there's a want to be in this relationship. So a desire to um, want to work together. One of the hard things for patients with trauma or um, you know, patients who have had bad experiences in healthcare um, is it is far too easy for those relationships to break. So a patient comes in and, um, you know, speaks up and says, you know, I didn't like that maybe you did this. And the doctor says, you're a difficult patient, goodbye. You know, and that doctor can say it kindly. They can say, you know, I've appreciated having the time to be your doctor, but I don't think this is working. I wish you all the best, but that's not loving. And that's not trauma informed because what they should be doing is saying, okay, maybe this patient didn't like what I did. Let's not take that as an attack on me directly. Let's process, you know, maybe something I did could have been better. Maybe something the patient has been through is made my action, you know, more substantial to her kind of had some like gentle curiosity there about how could I invest back into this relationship because I want to care about this relationship. There is curiosity. uh, Why this is happening. Uh, You use the word gentle curiosity. Why did you feel the need to add that adjective? I say gentle because I think sometimes people feel, especially in an age of social media where a lot is shared, um, they feel like they need the whole story. So they need, you know, a doctor could ask back, well, why, why didn't you like that? Why is that so bad? You know, what's wrong with you? And um, that puts somebody on the defense. Do they have to open up and share their entire trauma history with you to help you understand? Um, so be gentle in trying to kind of understand without, you know, breaking everything open. Um, every patient is going to be different in what they want to talk about and what they're comfortable, you know, um, opening up about. And so the gentleness is just a reminder that, you know, sometimes we are very curious, but that story is not ready to be told, you know. But you also, that also, that notion of, oh, you're not attacking me. Uh, I just took a misstep. Let's understand it a little better. That also requires a substantial degree of humility. Yes. And that is the, I think, Besides compassion, the fundamental part of trauma-informed care is asking for humility. It's asking for, um, you know, doctors have kind of this authoritative power. um, And traditionally, it's been kind of a patriarchal power. Um, And so to take that power away and say, okay, the patient may be saying something I don't want to hear, um, but maybe something that the patient is saying is something I need to hear. And that does take a lot of humility 
to step back and also be vulnerable. And that's, again, part of love is both parties are showing and being kind of vulnerable um, so that they can work together. And when we when you speak about trauma-informed care, the and when the emphasis is on on uh, for instance attitudes, you know, coming to the relationship with humility, with gentle yeah. curiosity, genuinely interested in the relationship, this attitudinal list that we're yeah. building here in conversation would suggest that it is a formal uh, approach, uh, that it is a a um, uh, something that I can put up, you know, I can I can I can put up as a theater, uh, as a play in my interaction with with people. Is there a content component to that to that uh, uh, that theater? Is there is is there is is there substance to 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 to, or is it simply just if I come with those attitudes, what will come out on the other end naturally will be will be care that will be appropriate for folks who have experience or are at risk of experience of trauma? Um, I think if I understand your question correctly, it's a little bit of both. So, you know, you can kind of put it on as a mask, I guess, you know, just like putting on your white coat, um, you know, you're going to put on your trauma-informed care coat. And, you know, that in itself is going to help shape the relationship. Um, but there are very practical things that can be done. Um, you know, one of, um, a couple of my posts on this gives some very detailed things, everything from creating, you know, a calm waiting room with, um, you know, patient forms that are very, um, uh, kind of understanding of different cultures or, um, you know, of the LGBTQ community, you know, that are considering all different sorts of experiences going in, everything from that those waiting room experiences to being in the exam room and letting the patient know it's okay if you want to have somebody here with you. Um, you know, when I do a procedure, everything from listening to your heart and lungs, um, doing the what they call, you know, um, ask before um, acting. So, you know, can I listen to your heart and lungs? And there, you know, that seems that's the basic thing you might do in an appointment. And, you know, you would think, of course, the patient's here. Of course, they'll let me do that. But there might be a patient who says, no, no, I'm not ready to be touched today. Um, so there are some kind of uh, real examples of things that can be put in place, as well as the overarching, um, you know, attitude, um, which I think, you know, you have to have that attitude just to start with, that you want to come at this from a place of compassion and understanding. Yeah, it's it's not too difficult to see how how once you do that, uh, you not only do you develop love as yeah. a, as an outcome of the relationship, but you you create an environment for for love to develop. You know, and exactly. so so it's um, one of our investigators uh, is asking about a project that we're doing in the unit that is uh, focused on patients who um, we a project is called the Undercared Project. These patients who come. For care, 
but they have a condition that um, that for which there is no good mechanistic understanding. Sometimes they're called unexplained medical syndromes. Yeah, and, um, and some people it's a lottery, right? Some people come to care for that, and uh, and they get traumatized by the response. They get yeah. dismissed. Uh, they don't get uh, they don't they don't get heard. And you mentioned this that feeling feeling left, you know, feeling unheard is one of the ways in which healthcare, even what appears to be fairly competent, technical healthcare could be cruel, in my language, traumatizing in in the one that we're developing here. Um, I wonder, the question is, was about, are the, you know, what are examples where, where, where you felt heard and, uh, and feeling heard made a big difference in the way things went? Yeah, so an example of where I felt um, heard, um, gosh, um, I'm just trying to think how to make it uh, short because it involved a lot of people who really wanted to help. And it, um, you know, it took something that we don't always have in healthcare, which is time. And we don't have time because there are money issues and because there are a lot of patients um, to see. And, you know, when somebody invests that time, it is really unique because you get the time to, um, a term I've talked about um, in the past called hold space. And holding space is... um, especially important for those times where there's not necessarily an answer, where what your role is, is to listen and validate and then recognize what the other person is saying um, and going through and kind of not just, you know, they've come into the clinic, I'm seeing them in this five to 15 minutes I might have right now, but trying to see beyond um, that space. So, you know, your patient has a family or has pets or has hobbies and interests. Um, They've got good things in their lives. They've had bad things in their lives. And can you find a way to hold space for all of that, which is a lot in the small timeframe that you have, um, and what ways can you um, make time? You know, that's another thing that really shows up in trauma-informed care is you can tell somebody is compassionate and wants to understand you when they want to make that time for you. Um, and patients, you know, are understanding. We know that there are a lot of other people that you have to see your restricted in your time. But what we need is, um, you know, again, to feel that validation in being heard. And sometimes, you know, your clinic, um, you're saying a lot of people may not have some um, exact diagnosis, and it's something that you're investigating. um, And maybe doesn't have an answer. I think a lot of COVID patients um, with the, you know, kind of hashtag long COVID have this sense of not knowing what's next or, or what their body's going through to be 
honest and say, you know, I don't have an answer, which is something doctors don't like to say, (laughs) um, is a valid answer, but it not just to stop there. Um, again, to say, I don't have an answer, but I am here to listen and help. And I will try to find an answer if we are invested in this together. So the, um, uh, one of the thing, one of the themes of this, of this care cast is this idea of care that fits. And, uh, and what, what, um, we normally speak of is, is care that makes, uh, intellectual, practical, and emotional sense. And it doesn't say fixes that make intellectual practical, it's just <laughs> care, right? And, uh, and so I think that concept is open enough uh, to include people that we cannot fix, but whose health situation we can advance uh, right. with by listening and being humble and, uh, and, and joining them in their, in their, in their, in their struggle. Right. Yeah. I think that's um, the key is it's also, you know, kind of a process. It's not something that, you know, when you think of fixing something or having a cure for something, um, you know, that gives an end to the relationship. But most health um, care instances, there's not really a fix or a cure necessarily. It's something you're going to carry with you the rest of your life. Like even, you know, I had hip surgery uh, a year and a half ago, you know, my hip's great, but I'm still going to have that experience of the pain that came before the surgery, all of that I'm going to carry with me and have as part of my health history for the rest of my life. So it's a process, you know, technically it's fixed, <laughs> but as a person, it is still part of me. You've 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 been through a lot of healthcare from what you've uh, indicated during just during this conversation, yeah. um, and uh, as a result, you must have filled thousands of patient satisfaction surveys. Um, do any of them do any of them ask the right question, or what is your favorite question that they asked? And and have you ever seen anybody act on any of them? Yeah, this is actually. A great question because the um, state Medicaid program here just asked me a very similar question of they have their patient surveys and they said, um, we're not sure how to get doctors to act on these surveys um, and what to do with these surveys. And I had to um, do the very unfortunate thing, which I'm going to do now. Um, of saying doctors don't want feedback. Hmm. That's how it not only feels, but often plays out. Um, Healthcare is kind of cruel. And unfortunately, when you bring up um, feedback, often what comes is defensiveness. Um, That's part of the I think American system, I don't know if it's everywhere. Um, It's very legalistic based. You know, I've been in hospitals where all I wanted to do was share with them my experience. And I got a letter back from a lawyer and I was like, no, I just wanted to make care better. And now we've made this 
you know, they weren't going to sue me, but their response was, we, you know, we followed our guidelines, we did X, Y, Z. Um, so it, it comes back again to what I was saying earlier with trauma-informed care is having the humility to take feedback and not become defensive and not see it as an attack um, and wonder where it came from and what can I do to um, change and be better because patients generally aren't filling out these forms thinking that, um, you know, everything is going to be rosy all of a sudden. Oh, you, you hear my feedback and you're going to change everything and now care will be better for all. I think most of us have started to realize we fill these out and sometimes they go nowhere and nobody's listening and nobody really wants to change. And that's, um, heartbreaking. It creates a sense of, um, you know, another term called betrayal trauma or institutional betrayal trauma, which is uh, kind of a break in trust. Not only have you now not heard me, but you're either not acting or you're reacting in a very defensive way. And that hurts. Um, because I'm already vulnerable and I've already been through something that maybe wasn't great. Um, I will say I do also try to provide good feedback, like when something is good. I think that's really important to acknowledge um, doctors and give them their gold stars when they do listen. I, you know, Aaron, I think that that, um, so, that I, I'm going to project that. Uh, yeah. I, Colleagues and I, we have extremely frail egos, and uh, we've we've gone far by by acing the test. And all of a sudden, we get a failure from the from a yeah. patient. Of, oh my goodness, it's the end of the world, right? And so we fall apart. But also, institutions, I think, have not bought into this idea of uh, of seeing patients as colleagues, and or or let let alone uh, they're not capable. Um, institutions can't care. Institutions can't love, right? And so they're right. not. They're not capable of responding with love, so they they respond with the with the uh, legalese and uh, yeah. you know what, what, But but I think this 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 the idea that patient satisfaction surveys could be an expression of curiosity, but instead become a pro forma way of actually responding to a system uh, rather than listening to a patient. I think right. it, it's another another opportunity to 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 introduce cruelty and trauma. So what you're saying which um, I'm sure uh, people that are committed to patient ex uh, uh, ex experience uh, improvement will be, you know, quite uh, dismayed by. Um, uh, one of the questions we're getting is um, that uh, it's about training. To what extent, you talked about universal precautions, that anyone coming in for care is in a position of vulnerability and uh, Caring, I mean, the definition I like to use for caring is, is the ability to approach the person with the intention to advance their situation, noticing that they, they are in need of care, and then uh, responding with compassion and competence, oftentimes co-creating that response, right? That, that's how I think of care. Um, uh, you're saying that uh, in, in a context of, of trauma-informed care, that we need to have the universal precaution and assume the person in front of us either has experienced trauma or is at high risk of experiencing trauma now. And there's some universal precautions that we can we can uh, uh, use uh, to prevent that uh, outcome of re-traumatizing or
embedded as a competency in medical education. I think um, they've taken some baby steps in medical education to talk about empathy, trying to see things from the patient's perspective, um, but there are some kind of problems with empathy. The first being, as a doctor, you are, by definition, in that situation, not the patient. So you can't fully understand their situation. So, um, you know, one thing in education that can help and in training that can help is what you're doing now, uh, which is inviting a patient to talk, to come give um insight into their experiences. And that's um, even more important um, for other marginalized communities, you know, people of color, um, people in the LGBTQIA plus community, um, and uh, really listen so that you can get that perspective. Um, if it's not in training, um, then it's something that I think um, medical education kind of does the opposite of and says, don't become too attached. Um, keep your relationships professional and sterile and have uh, very secure boundaries and, you know, don't let anybody in. Um, and it kind of becomes very isolating and cold and it's much harder to learn those competencies later on. Um, but it is also kind of a journey, something that is changing all the time as we listen to different populations of patients, um, different experiences in different settings. Um, there are a lot of great research articles out there that talk about trauma-informed care and how to implement it. A lot of great presentations. Um, Meg Gerber um, has a wonderful book on trauma-informed care and primary health care. Um, she is a great advocate um, who I would recommend. I My one concern with all of this is that a lot of times the articles and the things that are teaching doctors are also made by doctors. So again, back to that first point of invite patients in to teach and to keep helping you learn um, because you never know what materials or resources they might have to offer and, um, and build upon. Yeah. Um, the, um, when we think about care that fits, we talked about, and, you know, developing an understanding with the patient of their biology and their biography. And it sounds like, an example of that biographical con context is uh, their experience or vulnerability to trauma. And uh, you've, you've educated us about this importance of gentle curiosity to, un to seek to understand um, without necessarily, you know, uh, going beyond what is necessary to act, um, uh, respecting that people may, may end up relieving their trauma by, by having to, elicit it in detail, in the detail that you're being, you're inquiring. Did, do I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, again, there's, um, a way to go about, you know, asking people about traumas. Um, some of the research says to make it kind of a, 
a universal ask, just like we now ask about alcohol or drug use on an intake form and kind of normalize it and say, have you experienced trauma in the past? And that doesn't mean that you have to ask, okay, and tell me now all about every traumatic experience. Some patients may not even recognize that what they've been through is something called trauma. Yeah. Um, and so, again, it's uh, both kind of normalizing the conversation um, and also giving the opportunity for somebody to speak, but also just be cared about in general. How, how many opportunities, isn't it? Because as we accelerate healthcare, there is, you know, there is less time for us to hold space, to yeah. listen, to have curiosity. Yeah. Uh, the clinicians that are showing up to care, 40% uh, have symptoms of burnout. So compassion is going to be in short supply. And we have done a great job at lowering expectations uh, that you will encounter a caring, kind, curious, and humble yeah clinician when you seek care. Um, uh, should we have hope? You know, um, that's hard for me. Honestly, I'm going to be quite frank that some days I, I don't have as much hope. And, and um, you know, I've been writing about trauma-informed care for a couple of years now and um, reading the research and talking with doctors and with patients. And some days uh, you know, you see a patient who finally comes across this and is able to process their own trauma and find ways to advocate for themselves. And it is inspiring because you think, gosh, you know, that's, you know, seeing somebody heal like that and move forward is, you know, why doctors do what they do. Um, because that light is just something incalculable. It's wonderful. But then there are other days, and I think we're going to have a lot of them to come because of COVID, because of how many patients are now in our system, um, because of how overwhelmed nurses and doctors have been, where, um, you know, that light is going to be dimmed, if not go out sometimes. And that's really hard um, to think about and to keep wanting to go through. But I think it's in having these discussions like you and I are having that kind of rekindle that hope. Okay, maybe it's been lost, but maybe we can find it again um, and find it in new ways. Um, you know, because again, it's ever evolving and patients are ever evolving and the resources we have, whether it's the ability to simply email my doctor now is something back in the day I didn't have, you know, now I have a way to connect on a different level. I can send you a picture of my cat and we can connect that way um, versus, you know, in the old day, I just waited by the phone for a call of my, you know, blood work. Um, so I, I want to hope that there's hope but I do think we have to be realistic that um, because of the many different ways that healthcare has been set up um, in America and because of the many challenges we're facing now, um, that it's going to take time and a lot of energy 
um, people wanting to invest in this. Erin, uh, um, your your energy and your generosity and your clarity and your advocacy um, uh, is is the source of my hope. Uh, so I I really appreciate you joining us today. I want to ask you the last question: What's what's next for Erin Gilmer? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I I honestly don't know. Um, you know. Being disabled, um, being a patient, um, one of again, one of the real frank conversations to have is levels of engagement. And there are, um, you know, months at a time where getting out of bed might be hard. And that is what I do that day. And that has to be my accomplishment. Um, we live in a society that values work, 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 work. And so there's a lot of shame and um, difficulty in coming to that realization that, you know, I'm not uh, productive every single moment of every single day. And I think a lot of patients, chronically ill people feel that. I think a lot of people during the pandemic are feeling this as well. What does it mean to be productive? What does tomorrow bring? We don't know. And it's, and I think we need to come to a place of, again, holding space for each other in those moments. So, you know, what's next for me is the hope that there are days where I can write more and share more information. And there are days where I hope that people um, are able to hold space for me, or I'm able to hold space for them and what they're going through. And in that way, I also get to practice trauma-informed care for the people around me, right? You know, it's coming back to that part of our earlier discussion on human rights and um, offering kindness and care to, um, to one another. And we can do that, you know, at the big grand levels of, you know, instituting trauma-informed care as the way to practice. And we can do that at the small micro levels of just saying, how are you today? You know, I'm here to listen. You know, I'm glad you're here. So it's, uh, it's been the CareCast from the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit. Thank you for joining us. I hope to see you next time and take care. And Erin, thank you so much. Thank you.